the National Academy. I'm Gregory Amanoff, the president of the Academy. Uh, right now you're in the school section, and uh, around the corner and in the front door, we have a museum with a, an exhibition that we're extremely proud of uh, with that wonderful review. The New York Times, as you saw yesterday, for our own show, Surrealism USA, which was curated by uh, our chief curator, Isabel Dervaux, and if you haven't seen the exhibition, we strongly hope that you can make your way Wednesday through Sunday around the side of the school here and to the front of the building at 1083 and come in and see the show. Uh, it's one of the best shows we've done here, and we're very, very excited about it and thrilled that it received the kind of attention that it's been receiving. I'm also very happy to, uh, well, tell you very briefly, this is the oldest artist organization in the United States, founded in 1825 by Samuel F.B. Morse, um, who, of course, was a painter along with the John Dash business, and uh, uh, somehow I find myself in the, being a successor some 180 years later. Uh, at any rate, we hope you come to our exhibitions and to our events, and especially to the review panel, which I will credit David Cohen. Uh, for his foresight and for his uh, creative idea, which uh, we came together with this and we're co-sponsoring it with his uh, website, artcritical.com, where he is the uh, editor. And uh, it's a great idea. As I was thinking, and I'll say now, this is the fifth one that we've done this year. We hope to continue the series next year. But I, in thinking about the art world and having suffered through panels on both sides of it, uh, <laughs> and I, I'm sure you know what I mean, uh, it's a very difficult thing. Uh, it takes a very special personality to have an idea for something, to uh, be able to move it along and also actually uh, present something with great insight. And David is a great originator and a great moderator. Uh, those of you that have been here have discovered that. And uh, I will spend no more time. I hope that in the fall you keep your email accounts running and you find out about uh, the future of this program. We hope to continue it into the fall and into next year. We're currently trying to raise money, so we can continue it. So with that, I will introduce David Cohen, and uh, the rest of the program will, will be his, and thanks very much for coming. I hope you come to the rest of the things that we're doing here. Uh, David Cohen, as I mentioned, is the editor and I, I think founder of ArtCritical.com, which is a co-sponsor with the Academy uh, of this series. And I will tell you that we are streamed live, uh, the past for our cast, are streamed live on ArtCritical.com, so you can go catch the, uh, what we uh, did in October, November, December, and I believe February, if I'm not remembering incorrectly. Uh, David also is one of the critics at The Sun, The New York Sun, which uh, his column on gallery going appears on Thursday. And in addition, he is the curator of the New York Studio School Gallery. So let's please welcome David Cohen. Thank you very much indeed, Gregory, for, for a warm and accurate introduction and, and for the kind words you've said about the series so far. Uh, as you mentioned, the series can be heard live on artcritical.com, thanks to the wonderful, skilled engineering of Mr. Graham White. Um, and we, you can go online and hear contributions from the critics uh, Arthur Danto, Joe Fife, James Gardner, Ken Johnson, Maureen Mularkey, Mario Naves... Walter Robinson, Andrea Scott, Katie Siegel, Jerry Saltz, Roberta Smith, and Alexi Wirth, who were guests in review panels one through four. I'd also like to, by the way, thank uh, Gregory and uh, Susan Shatter for the amazing generosity and uh, wisdom in, in bringing this uh, idea here to the Academy. 
and to the wonderful staff here, led by Annette Blaugrund, and I'd like to mention in particular Kathleen Brady and Rebecca Allen for their very um, uh, great help in, in making this happen. This evening's distinguished panel, uh, on my right, uh, Gregory Volk, who is uh, uh, a regular contributor to uh, many publications, including Art in America, a prolific essayist. We're about to see his work on Vito Acconci, and he is the Associate Professor at the Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. Uh, Karen Wilkin is a regular contributor to the New Criterion, the Wall Street Journal, and Art in America. She's a contributing editor for Art at the Hudson Review, and her monographs include uh, David Smith, Anthony Caro, Hans Hoffman, Giorgio Morandi, and Stuart Davis. And Rob Storr is the Rosalie Solo Professor of Modern and Contemporary Art at New York University's Institute of Fine Arts, just down the museum mile here. Uh, he was, of course, a curator at the Museum of Modern Art for a, a distinguished decade, 1992 to 2002, uh, plus overtime, as he puts it, as he has worked on shows uh, since that date, Beckman, for instance. And uh, last, but by no means least, he is a painter. Ladies and gentlemen, our panel. Now, let me just say a word describing the format of the evening, which differs slightly from the first um, four panels we've had and uh, will obviously uh, be a revelation to you, to those of you who are uh, first-timers here at the review panel number five. Uh, the shows that we're reviewing this evening, Shazia Sikander at Brent Sycamore, Robert Gober at Matthew Marks, Harriet Shaw at Cheryl Palavin, and Magnus von Plessen at Gladstone Gallery... Uh, what we're going to do is we do a little PowerPoint presentation because of, we know, of course, that every single one of you has been treading the sidewalks of New York to diligently see and form your own critical opinions of those shows before hearing us do our bit. Um, but some of you may not have got to the gallery in time or it's always good for all of us to have a little visual refresher. So what we do is we have a little PowerPoint where we look at uh, some selected images from the first two shows which we're going to look at, which are the Sikander and then the Goba. Then we'll discuss those shows, and then we'll have time uh, allotted for the audience to uh, let off some steam or uh, probe or challenge things they've heard from the panel. And then when we take a breath, we'll move on to the, um, the second half of the program. Shazia Sikander, who was born in Lahore in Pakistan, um, had an exhibition, has an exhibition at Brent Sycamore, Chelsea, entitled 51 Ways of Looking, and um, all the work is from 2004. Um, actually, this particular series is called 51 Ways of Looking. Uh, they're graphite on paper works, each uh, 12 inches by 9 inches. We have a few examples of them, and if we see the next one, we are seeing them in the correct order, although we're seeing a random selection of the 51 um, images. But we, we can sense from the selection, next image please, some of the uh, variety of um, touch that, that, that occurs with the use of graphite and also um, the way in which the image sort of transmogrifies. Uh, there's an animation element within these 51 still images. Oh dear. Well, 
All right. Th these are uh, these are, by the way, you know, small black and white images. They're going to be difficult to photograph. Whatever you do. So let's um, let's let's move on to the next one. Um, um, this is this is one of her um, quote several sided circles, uh, a, a huge uh, ink and gouache on prepared paper, 81 inches by 55. And uh, just just to throw the scale completely, this larger reproduction is of a much smaller image, 13 by 17 inches. One of her land escapes series number three. And uh, now we have four stills from the. Uh, Pursuit Curve, an animated film from 2004, seven minutes in duration, with sound by David Abir. So now if we have a quick look, please, at um, Robert Gober's work. Well, from the world of the Sufi to uh, a form of Catholicism, this is the, uh, the, the uh, St. Matthew Marks gallery. Um, with a work that is untitled, or an installation that's untitled, um, consisting of uh, what seem perhaps at first found objects, but are in fact crafted from such materials as plaster, fur, wool, linen, paper, bronze, human hair, beeswax, uh, socks and shoes. Um, obviously those are appropriated. Um, and uh, polythylene and um, other assorted materials. Um, the object in the foreground there is a uh, clerical shirt with the collar, the Roman collar, and a clipping on it uh, describing the event of uh, people at the Republican Congress wearing purple hearts on their bandages to uh, mock the uh, heroism or contested heroism of Senator Kerry. And then um, objects on those um, bits of masonry uh, represented include uh, a kind of carton uh, with various things inside it, uh, wood that looks like uh, perhaps a prop from a Mel Gibson movie, um, and uh, some carefully crafted uh, diapers and um, the newspaper clippings, a uh, yes, bowl of fruit. Um, that door uh, leads, it doesn't open, but reveals uh, perhaps um, Duchamp-like uh, some uh, happening in a bathroom. Uh, these newspaper clippings, which are, I gather, uh, uh, reconstructed from pages of the New York Times describing the attacks of September the 11th, 2001, are then uh, mirrored in reverse writing with the, the repeated image, also watercolored image repeated. Um, next, please, on the other side of the gallery. And uh, the crucifix here, which is the decapitated uh, sports uh, fountains, which... Uh, uh, well, or fountains is a loaded term, well, has water squirting from the breasts, which uh, find their way through um, a hole that's drilled in the floor of the gallery. Next, there's the hole in the gallery, and with, with the water miraculously squirting. Next, oh yes, that's the view of the bathroom, and then the reading matter that uh, uh, is diverting the bather there is, uh, again, from the New York Times, but this time the Star Report in full. I think that's it. Good. Okay, so leave it there. Let's kick off with Shazia Sikander. Gregory, what did you make of Shazia Sikander? <clears throat> I think that she's wonderful. And the 51 ways of looking, I, I, I think it's um, completely 
It's an enthralling series for me, very interesting that it's like, it starts from a very analytic perspective. She's dealing with like squares and circles, kind of most basic components in uh, say Western minimalism, which is actually important for her. And as one goes through it, it just starts opening up in so many ways. And like sometimes you can see precisely what she did, but other times it's full of uh, complete surprises. This like animal life develops, and she and she, by the way, is extraordinary when it comes to depicting the expressions on the faces of animals. I think. I mean, the only way. I would maybe like a, a Giotto leapt to my mind when she has, she has these like beautiful, beatific, concentrated, lovely expressions on micro animals, and that and that's just one thing that develops. Also foliage, also architecture. So in, and she's just weaving these worlds together. Uh, I mean, her tradition, Pakistan, and here, and I think and doing it in a very um, very exquisite way. And one thing I'd, I'd like to when I'm speaking here tonight, I just uh, rather than me summing up what I think about these shows because I would only do that uh, as a critic in writing I would never do it in speaking because uh, the, the act of writing for me is my essential thing with the, for how to understand these things that's why I'm a writer mm -hmm. and uh, so here I'd more like just be um, in process uh, in the same way that you would be seeing these shows seeing like what was interesting or enticing to me and if I would want to pursue that show uh, in terms of writing about it with her show absolutely Karen is this a show that you pursue in your writing Absolutely. I'm, I'm an enormous admirer of the Shazi Sikandar's work, and I thought this was a, a very strong show in every way. I agree completely with, with uh, Gregory about the uh, fascination of, of uh, 51 ways of looking. Um, I, my, my association with, with, the, with the rectangles was, was of, uh, also multivalent. As, this is one of the fascinating things about her work. It's, it's so ambiguous and so rich in its illusions. Uh, the uh, impo seemingly imposed rectangle, which may have associations with minimalism, is in some of the drawings surrounded by an incredibly delicately rendered foliage which has, again, associations with the Mughal miniature tradition, which she studied. And it becomes like the um, aerial perspective of the um, miniatures, which is, of course, the, the point of view of Allah, the all-seeing, who sees things whole and perfect in a way that um, mere mortals cannot, which is why uh, overlapping in perspective is not permitted um, in, in the traditional miniature. But as soon as you get that um, association, something else kicks in. And, and this, this is a woman whose tradition is, uh, who, whose life is full of layers of uh, moving out of one culture into another. She's extremely knowledgeable about uh, the entire history of Western art and modernism. And this is part of her vocabulary. It's uh, an, an astonishing show in that sense, and as all her work is. I would say that I find her smaller work, um, the gouaches and the drawings, uh, more compelling than the large works, and I think that's because you need to come very close to uh, them to uh, have the extraordinary sense of materiality. She's very, uh, 
use, uses paint and, and graphite and whatever materials at hand in very subtle and expressive ways. The, the delicate difference in the thickness of a crisp line on a pool of uh, washy color is very important to the uh, meaning of the work. And the larger ones, you, you're not inclined to come that close to. When you do come that close to, you lose the whole. So I'm, I'd, um, I was more taken with, with the small ones. And the video, okay. I thought, was, was uh, surprisingly successful. Which, which, uh, which, of the, which of the scales and mediums, Rob, did you find yourself um, the most satisfied with or the least? Well, I'd sort of like to contextualize it a little bit. Number one, um, I've spent a lot of time looking at Indian miniatures and Pakistani miniatures and the art of this type in its original form. So um, I think the challenge of anybody who goes in this direction is to deal with not only the conventions, but the standard of factor that you find in the originals. Mm -hmm. And since there's a range, it's not as if there's any particular version of that. But there is a kind of decisiveness in Christianness which comes from the extreme codification of every part of the making of those things, which becomes then the benchmark against which you have to operate. And some of the work that uh, this artist has made is there absolutely. It seemed to me in this show it was beginning to wobble a good deal. Um, I would say that it's wobbling for interesting reasons. I think she's I think trying... it's wobbling deliberately. Well, I think it's wobbling because it's unsure. <laughs> um, but I think the unsureness is part of something that I'm for, which is her uh, you know, desire to move away from that model and to find things that will give her greater latitude to deal with other ideas and other conventions. I would also ask, uh, sort of answer it in terms of, uh, not the contextualization only backward, but there's a very interesting show now at Asia House uh, in which there are a couple of artists who deal with these conventions. There was a show in Queens about two years ago where I can recall two artists, I apologize for not knowing the names, who also went back to the miniature tradition. It seems to be a stopping point for a lot of artists from, uh, from um, that part of the world, uh, but it is a problematic one. And I think that it is especially so when the work is made in a context where your audience isn't as familiar with the conventions as you are. Um, so I would simply say I'm interested in the transition. I'm for what she does. I think the video, actually, which is the second of the ones I've seen, uh, the video is the most interesting part of this mm -hmm. particular show with then wonderful passages in some of the drawings, particularly the big ones. I kind of disagree with the rest of you on that. Uh, but also uh, a lot of unsureness, actually. Yes, I found that the the non-miniature... the I found that the, the scale and the medium that's... Um, the more Western, the, the less uh, related to miniature painting, to be the ones where actually uh, I was the most exhilarated, the video and the, the very, very large um, pink work, uh, uh, series. Um, I don't know what it's called. It doesn't matter. Um, and uh, I am interested in this idea of her uh, uh, grappling to um, move move on, as it were. The The... the um, uh, the the last show she had at Brent Sycamore seemed to me erring on the side of the gimmick. These um, rather overly elaborate um, uh, new medium technologies. There seemed to be a, something endearingly simple about the um, technology of the animation she was presenting in the movie, and something particular in the, in the in the DVD, and something very satisfying about the the music that went with it. Um, it fascinates me when, with animation, whether or not the artist animating, the animator, 
looks uh, for a kind of movement that is germane to the style or the, the way in which they would ordinarily draw or not. I mean, there's two ways to go, and that is to just allow for a complete technological fluidity and, and as, as simple as possible. The other is the actual movement itself, as you get in William Kentridge, um, having some of the comparable energy to the way in which the drawing might have been put down, and then one really has an extent and, and uh, a sensation of the, the moving image as that, as a moving image. Well, Kentridge, I mean, Kentridge's work as animation is so much more interesting than it is his drawings. Yes. And, and it is uh, not only interesting visually, but it's the poetics of the piece, that erasure, effinescence, all of these things are what make it work. I think in her case, actually, it's the point where the wit comes in. I mean, there's this wonderful moment where you see this phalanx of courtiers, gentlemen all, yes. uh, and then the next thing, their turbans have, you know, taken off, and the next thing, their turbans are fluttering like butterflies. I mean, I think that's the, a wonderful passage. The, the, the narrative as a whole doesn't hold up that detail, but that detail maybe uh, is the best part of it, and the rest could fall away, and you would have this sort of wonderful transitional thing. But it's you know there's a lot of intelligence there, and I think it's just a matter of doing the hardest thing for an artist, which is to grow and change in public. And she's young. Yeah. I mean, she's she's there's lots of time. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't know the, like, the whole story about her and all of this, if you just saw this uh, this 51 Ways of Looking series, I don't think that one would leap to the conclusion that it's so grounded, in, so utterly grounded in that tradition of miniatures. That I know it because about. I look at it, not because mm -hmm. I know the story. I mean, I actually know yeah. her, too, no. but but no, it's it's present. She, she not only alludes to it, she underlines it with exactly how she does it. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly in, in Rob's position. I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at both um, Persian and, and Indian uh, miniatures. And then I mean, she's not just only alluding to the, the Muslim tradition. There are Hindu uh, allusions. There's, there's a, a whole Ragwala tradition having to do with, Ragmala tradition having to do with, with music. I mean, it's, it's, it's full of all, all kinds of allusions, and, and not just to that. And that, that I think, is, is the strength. And she's, she's trying, I mean, she's, pushing these things together, she's braiding them in ways that sometimes don't work as harmoniously, but um, I'm fascinated and I'm convinced. Okay, if you're convinced though, this is where I, I'm going to sound a little notion of, a little note of discord, although as it happens, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate because we seem to be in unanimity in our affection for this artist, but um, if there was a degree of skepticism in my mind, it had to do with the fact that Exquisite though the touch was, um, and 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 uplifting though the kind of imagery was, and particularly the, the animation, even in the fifty-one, the still series, there was a. I think they were animated. One one had a sense of movement from one to the other, especially when there was a break in language. But um, I, I guess I'm not versed. Well, I'm not versed in the least in uh, in. Sufi uh, mysticism. This has nothing to do with Sufi mysticism. Really? Nothing. Oh, well, then I can uh, enjoy my ignorance. I, I doubt it. Has... <laughs> We're enjoying it. <laughs> I, I suspect it has plenty to do with Sufi mysticism. I mean, you've got... The, you've got well, how can it not have to do with the Sufi... Well, maybe it doesn't. It has to do with Islamic mysticism of some sort, whether it's... If, if I'm not being specific enough in my terminology and it's not Sufi, but some other branch of Islamic mysticism... There Fine, and thank you for the correction, but I suspect it's a pedantic one because this is uh, dealing with uh, some kind of spirituality. And does that come across? I mean, are we really are we getting any kind of theosophical substance from the work um, 
well, per I, se, I, I, or is it is it just that it's quote unquote spiritual or religious because of the uh, iconography and the illusions in a generalized way? I think we should be careful because the idea that the East is spiritual is part of the exoticism which pervades mm -hmm. the way in which the West looks at the East. Now, I actually don't know what she believes. Uh, and I'm not sure that it matters in detail what she believes, but I think we have to be very leery of not getting involved in that sort of presumption. Anything, again, that's as funny as this one is, mm -hmm. is a spirituality I'm ready to sign on for, you know, failing knowledge of where else it might lead me, but I don't need the spirituality to enjoy that wit. And, and in fact, much of, what, much of the tradition she's drawing on in these images um, has nothing to do with religious imagery. It has to do with courtly life. Yeah, it has to exactly. do with formality. It has to do with codes of behavior. Um, whether that's the main reason they're in there, or they're, or it's another uh, having to do with the mathematical codes. Um, whatever we want to bring to it is uh, is fine. But I think to assume uh, that because it's uh, a miniature tradition, that it's a religious miniature, this is, these aren't icons. Yeah, this I mean, is a whole painting style. It also has to do with men and women, very clearly, in some mm -hmm. form. How yeah. I'm not, haven't quite touched yeah. on, but it is not an accident that you, you begin with that phalanx and that you end with that sort of, you know, and, well, there's that sort of, flight uh, of butterflies. Yeah, and the butterflies also become this kind of, uh, you know, uh, blastula of cells. Uh, so there, there are other kinds of overtones. And she has played with that uh, using, using body parts or using... Um, uh, Here's the turbans. There were another where it was the, the hair, hairdos of the gopis, Krishna's uh, cohorts, that, and another earlier one that did something similar. So it's, it's, it's so she's making her own language. One of the great things about Akbar, too, was that he was very ecumenical. He came into a world which had many religions. He brought with him bits and pieces of his own and constructed an Arab empire based on a remarkable degree of tolerance. And the sort of the decline of the Mughal Empire was the moment when it became fundamentalist Muslim again. So mm -hmm. what you're looking at, if you're looking at Muslim stuff proper, is sort of the great openness of a thriving empire in which there is authority, but also degrees of tolerance that we, by the way, don't see much of these days. And I think there's some more imagery in this as well. Gregory? I just have one, uh, one question. What did you think of uh, the landscape series? The little ones? Yeah. I was less impressed with those, frankly. I mean, yeah, they, they have some lovely touches to them, but that seems to me the, the, the point where she wasn't quite sure how far to push it in any direction. No, I, th I, I thought there were huge that. differences uh, among them, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were some that I, th I thought were really uh, not of any interest at all, and a few that... I and not did tired. tread a very elegant balance. Well, I seem to be uh, get, getting a tough time from making a, <laughs> a, an assumption that there must be some spiritual significance in work which is demonstrably about sacred geometry that has quotations in it from, uh, I would guess, um, religious texts that, that certainly is using uh, a language of micrography, of, of, the, of text that becomes image, that transmogrifies from one to the other, and assuming that micrography per se has a kind of um, mystical meaning. Uh, I don't think actually I'm going out on such a limb or exoticizing uh, the work by saying that it's drawing on those traditions, and therefore when you draw on those traditions, um, in, in a work of secular contemporary art, or in a work of contemporary art, that it's, that it's likely that one is being led in, in some direction towards some kind of spiritual or religious contemplation. 
but we can remain entirely secular in looking at them, and maybe we are in fact permitted to do so. Oh well, we're permitted to do what we like, but I mean, um, by the artist, I'm saying it's, yeah. we're not asked again. We're not asked to take a reverential attitude. At least, if we are, oh, I didn't reverential it. is one thing. But I'm 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 saying that if you're standing in a gallery looking at the work, yes, you can have your own private aesthetic experience. But I think if you want to get to the the deepest possible experience, you'd want to actually engage with the work on its own terms and and interpret it and and find its meaning. And if it's drawing on a religious tradition, it seems to be about diagrams of the universe and seems to be about all kinds of things which have uh, religious and spiritual connotations. I think it would, on the contrary, you've accused me of exoticism, I'll accuse you of a certain, certain formalism in, in not wishing you to can. actually engage. <laughs> not actually wishing to engage with it on its manifest terms. But, David, you're, you're making assumptions uh, in your interpretation. Such you, as? The, the, such as the one, one of the uh, more diagrammatic of the 51 ways of looking you were reading as some kind of uh, diagram of religious cosmology. Uh, it could also, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that the, your association is, is uh, invalid. It's mm -hmm. your association. But I would like to throw out another one, which is the, in the structuring of a traditional miniature painting uh, in the Persian or the Mughal tradition, uh, there is an underlying geometry which organizes things, which has nothing to do with whether this is a scene of, uh, you know, one of the heroes uh, having a liaison with his beloved, or a scene of the court of the uh, emperor so and so, or possibly some uh, scene from the life of, of uh, uh, you know, Allah, but of, of, of Muhammad. But that geometry is not specifically religious. It's just part of the plan. Okay. <laughs> we, we can get into an argument about religion and whether the, you know, the, the, the whole modern Western notion of being able to discern something secular as compared to something religious is true of, of, the, of other cultures. But... Um, All I'm saying is there's more, more than 51 ways of looking at that particular image. <laughs> Well, I'm prepared to contribute at least seven. So, thank you for that, everybody. And I think we'd now like to move from uh, what is, uh, uh, is or is not uh, uh, Muslim-influenced art to what uh, cannot but be, to some extent, uh, an art uh, responding to the iconography and perhaps the experience of the Roman Catholic Church. Well... I don't think I should kick off because it might form a rather heretical discussion on the nature of a certain kind of art. I'll hold back for the moment. Rob, tell us, tell us um, what kind of experience you had with Goba's new exhibition. Well, very mixed, I'd have to say again. Um, more mixed than was Sikander, partly because I think Gober's set the bar higher in a number of different directions. And also because his position in the art world and how long he's been here brings one to these shows with kinds of expectations. Um, I guess I would say that I see two things. One, I was moved by parts of it, and I think I'm moved by parts of it because I'm a New Yorker. And like many people, I saw the towers burn and fall, and this happened, in a sense, to us, and this is a way of dealing with that. Um, 
I think that is probably something people who are not in New York would also feel. Um, and, it, and it's more simply than the, the newspapers on the side, but those newspapers are unforgettable, and particularly the man uh, in a sort of fetal position diving straight down. I mean, you can't see that image without understanding it in certain ways. And then when you see images of intimacy and of people simply clinging to each other and so on, that conjugates in a way which is very powerful. Um, I think the sound of the water, as much as the water gushing from the man's breasts, uh, tears, um, release, um, all kinds of things that go beyond the symbolism per se, but a kind of experiential thing, uh, that uh, I also must say that I, am, I welcome political art at this time, and I particularly welcome political art which is not uh, exhortatory or even condemning, but that makes one aware of the gravity of the things that are actually going on and, and the coexistence in that piece of the Star Report, which was uh, a kind of uh, parliamentary lynching, uh, and of the, the what happened in the towers and the particular image that's on the, 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 the priest's shirt, uh, don't tell you exactly how to vote. Um, I don't need to be told how to vote, by the way. Um, but, um, but it d does make you think about these as conjugating each other in some ways. The hesitancy on my part, and I will stop there, is that it seems to me that Gober, here as in his Venice Biennale presentation, has developed a kind of inner arcana, and this one comes along with a, with a guide, a sort of a guide explaining his symbolism. And I think that this is something that's happened to Jasper Johns and to a number of other artists who I deeply admire and who, again, move me, but where the game of assigning meanings and divining connections has become so elaborate that it is almost distracting from the primary good qualities of their work. The primary good qualities of the work, Karen, do they overwhelm you? No, I was distinctly underwhelmed. Um, I, I frankly was not convinced by the uh, use of the newspaper pages, uh, which are unforgettable and deeply moving. And, and all of us who lived through uh, September 11th, I've, I've spent an enormous amount of time on the 91st floor of the North Tower. Um, I wish I didn't know how well, so well what it was like to be there and what it took to get in and out of that building. Um, the, uh, I was involved with an international artist workshop that had several sessions uh, exactly where the first plane hit. The imposition of what I found to be not very compelling drawings on top of these pages, uh, the, the mirror image game for the sake of mirroring did not enhance my feelings about the moment. And I, yes, the sound of the water was appealing. Um, I found the objects themselves less than compelling. I am not convinced of the significance of Gober's going to great lengths to make a crumbling block of styrofoam out of white bronze um, as something that I'm supposed to be excited about. Um, I found the little peaking on either side of the uh, altar and the, the two sort of confessional type spaces where the two bathtubs with the one had hairy legs and one had not hairy legs. I assume this had something to do with male and female, 
but I kept thinking of that old Monty Python bit, uh, beyond the French bit. You know, my, my brother Esau is a smooth man, but I am an hairy man, or the other way around. Um, I was not compelled or moved by the objects themselves. Well, I, I was compelled and moved, but in a very negative direction. I felt from Sikander to uh, Goba was uh, a very serious attempt at the sublime to an utter, utter wallowing in the, in the ridiculous. I, I, I've, I've felt with him throughout his career, he's one of the artists who, both, who most, most bemuses and most often repels me, uh, that if you were making a satirical movie about how the avant-garde became completely institutionalized and spurious, and then just as you're about to start filming, uh, suddenly the props department forgot they'd forgot realized that they'd forgotten to make the art. Um, if the props manager got out of bed the wrong side that morning, it would be Robert Gober. It's just it's just banality, uh, as as Karen says, the the, the sheer. Um, nonsense of fabricating what then looks to be appropriated perhaps has a little wobbly edge to it so that gives it some kind of aesthetic interest but um, it seemed to me that in appropriating the, the imagery that's sacred to all of us of the attacks of September the 11th Mr. Gober has kind of extended the, the need to denigrate sacred symbols that he's been exploiting all along in his troubled relationship with the church of his birth. And, you know, anti-clericalism was radical when it started in the late 18th century and reached its peak of radicalism at the end of the 19th century. By the time the Surrealists, the original ones, never mind their followers upstairs, were taking on anti-clericalism in the 1920s, it was the most tired, hackneyed cliché in, in intellectual history. So where are we... Uh, like 80 years later, when, when you have a sort of Robert Gober, who represents America at Biennales, thinking he's doing something radical for an audience that's overwhelmingly agnostic or, like me, a sort of semi-agnostic reformed Jew. I mean, what are we supposed to make of this guy's, um, you know, uh, gripes with the Roman Catholic Church? There's nothing radical about it, and it's, it's, it's just a kind of sick denigration that doesn't help any of us. I think you're making a heck of a lot of assumptions here about, about uh, this work. First of all, why do you come to the conclusion that this, uh, like it's an anti-clerical work whatsoever? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't leap to that conclusion. And, and uh, leaving aside like whether you think it's great or not, or the, for me there's a certain points in that show that are rather astounding because of how close they are to the banal but not. I mean, there's something nutty uh, and wonderful for me about a guy uh, that makes his own plywood, you know. I mean, plywood is like so available, it's so everywhere, it's the most normal thing in the world. Every, he made it, I mean, he like painstakingly made this, and, and, and I think that action, his action uh, and his, the kind of meditative quality that he's bringing is important um, in those allegedly seemingly banal works. Going back to uh, what happened in 2001, we all had our experience in Hard Crane's terms of the world smithereening apart, you know, and one of the things that he's doing is he's dealing with, with smithereens, 
with a piece of uh, plywood, with a, a driftwood bit, you know, with, with a piece of styrofoam. And he's making those things in his turn, well, bronze, but lasting, durable, uh, intense, and, and, and whatnot. And one other thing I just throw out is in terms of visual art, like what do we mean when we use the word poetic? I mean, it's a very strange term in, in, in a way. Uh, but I would just hazard one guess that uh, uh, that poetry on a really high level has an ability to to condense multiple meanings into a single image, like would happen all the time with Emily Dickinson. And I think this is definitely happening uh, with Gober. I mean, there's like like several layers or more uh, with each of the of the components there. But I would not at all see this as like an attack on the church or something like that. Well, if I'm not in, uh, mistaken, the origin of the word poetics is to make, mm -hmm. uh, to make and to remake something, and particularly to create a combination of a distancing effect because you know it is not the natural form of that thing, but a heightened awareness of particular qualities and so on is precisely the opposite of the banal. It is the absolutely unusual incarnation of something which you would not give attention to if it was simply treated as a ready-made. I think that's the strength of Gober's work. I think sometimes it doesn't work, but I think by and large that is a very powerful thing. As to anti-clericalism, I wish what you say were true, that anti-clericalism was passe, but it is the return of clericalism in every possible form that makes it altogether, on the one hand, a radical gesture and altogether apropos. This very week we have seen all the clergy of all the major religions meeting in Jerusalem to forbid a gay march. And Bob Gober, incidentally, is a gay artist. I think uh, there's every reason, although I agree with you, that I don't think this piece is anti-clerical, but if it were anti-clerical, the cause and the provocation is plenty there. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. And then just to throw one other thing out, uh, uh, one thing that I'm interested in, in a way in terms of contemporary art, are how many uh, contemporary artists are really dealing with religiosity in, in a kind of significant way. I'm, I mean, I'm not the most religious guy that ever came down the pike, but I do know that it's very important and certainly is important in the history of art and literature in this country going back to Emerson and before. So I'm particularly interested to see you know, really good contemporary artists who in some sense are giving their take on religiosity and not letting the, uh, the other people, the, the, uh, the forces that are usually far more uh, right-wing or conservative, not letting them define uh, all that and what religion means uh, to us now. I think that's when I'm you say religiosity, you're using the word in a different way than the way okay. I use it. Uh, religiosity is the sort of the caricature, the extreme of religiousness. Um, okay. But, but no, I mean, uh, uh, do, we, do we mean, Gregory, which artists are dealing with uh, religious experience and the spiritual in a positive way, or do we mean which artists are satirizing religion? I'd say there are probably quite a lot doing both. Um, I don't think this is a bit of a satire religion. There may be elements of jabs at the church uh, in, in what's the entrance piece. By the way, I'm totally non-religious. I don't believe in any god of any kind. Um, I have interest in people who do, and I respect what comes out of it in some cases. But it seems to me, having grown up in a Christian tradition, that the first thing that Christians these days seem to be forgetting in public life is the Sermon on the Mount. And the second thing they forget is that Christ is the man of sorrows. This is a piece about the man of sorrows. The fact that the church is not behaving itself is where anti-clericalism -clerical, comes in. It is not anti-religiosity. Well, 
Of course, the beauty of the wonder of art is that one can bring so many different interpretations to the same object. <laughs> uh, but I don't feel I've um, erred in, in the side. I don't feel I've rushed in where angels fear to tread in, in viewing a decapitated uh, Christ figure whose breasts have become fountains and, uh, 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 and, and the kind of uh, Gibson-esque kind of uh, bits of the cross that are surmounting those styrofoam cubes as being um, either a, a mockery of sacred symbols or an appropriation to take them in, in some very odd, arcane, personal way. And somebody like uh, Matthew Barney, uh, to, to me, I mean, I'm not Mr. Barney's greatest fan, but coming out of the Gober exhibition, I sort of say, come back, Matthew, all is forgiven, because there you're somebody, <laughs> there's somebody using... Uh, Mason, uh, masonry, for instance, uh, free, the free, free Masonic symbolism, uh, and then integrating it with a whole other different set of traditions um, in, in a way that's iconographically layered and rich and odd and theatrical, uh, in a way that for me, Gober is just. And arcane. And arcane, in a way that to me, uh, Gober does not begin to approximate. I mean, it, it seems to me that he's. that the September 11th, one, you know, one has to. One doesn't have to tread carefully, but one should want to tread carefully. And the, the, this is, this is, um, it, it seems to be a certain kind of iconographical greed in helping yourself. Oh come to those on! Images. Listen, listen. This is really ridiculous. This, these are all sort of imposed definitions. But if you care to think that there are two, more than two alternatives, reverence or you know cynicism, and that in fact there are many, many ways which surrealism is about, which Dada is about, which a whole lot of modern art is about, of estrangement. Uh, of disorienting things, of then re-embracing them and using them in different ways. I mean, I, I'm not a Barney fan. I think we're almost perfectly diametrically opposed. I don't take Barney seriously, although I see him symptomatically as somebody to think hard about. But it seems to me that Gober errs often. Uh, but he errs in a direction which is deeply felt. It is deeply interesting. Uh, he takes real chances when he takes them, but he doesn't take them often enough. Uh, but I think he's a highly serious artist doing difficult work about a difficult subject. Uh, and we don't see enough of that. And the fact that it is not 100% successful uh, is something we should understand and respect in relation to the enterprise. And he's absolutely not cynical. I, it is I, not Jeff Koons. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I take Gober very seriously. I found this piece to be... Um, something that, I, that left me feeling completely blank. Um, the, the, as you say, the, the uh, private symbolism may be very meaningful to him, but I found the laboriously made replica of the uh, diapers and the laboriously made replica of the bowl of fruit to remain laboriously made replicas of a bowl of fruit and, and a package of diapers, even if they were placed on a plinth and lined up in some way that was supposed to have associations with altars. Um, I found myself not caring. I, I mean, I just would say I think we have to take him seriously. I'm, I can't persuade you to like it, and there are parts of it that I have problems with as well, but I think we cannot take him at the lowest possible estimate of what he's doing.
I also think that it's interesting how this came up. I would say that it's, he's doing like almost the exact opposite sculpturally of Matthew Barney, if you forget the videos, if that's possible. Like sculpturally, I mean, he, he's, uh, you know, it's like he's working with trash cans and plywood and light bulbs and diapers and styrofoam that floated somewhere on the Long Island Sound. I mean, that's actually rich stuff. I mean, this is like debris. It's not like really, you know, ready-mades or something. It's like debris. And there is a lot of debris in each, uh, uh, among, on many different levels. And I think it's completely interesting how he's dealing with that in, in this like ultra-obsessive working with his uh, assistants, finding the right person to make the perfect trash can. You know, I mean, it, 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 that it's like a little lumpy, a little awkward, a little lovely, uh, this completely ambiguous trash can. And I, I think that's actually quite, um, a, quite a sculptural thing and psychological thing that he's dealing with in a, in a kind of wonderful way. And he must be I, pretty good because we have a little heat and passion about this one. <laughs> yes. He's created it. I must give him credit. I'm in a position where I can only answer Gregory's heartfelt poetic interpretation by a, a sort of cheap way of denigrating that and repeating what I've said, which is negative, and the negative can never really quite be articulated with the emotion and force. I but think. what's so negative, even, even if no, you use saying, those, cri those, those newspapers that we all know, I mean, he mm -hmm. saved them all, you know. Uh, he, he used them all, he made this mirroring effect, and then he did those drawings. They're not good drawings. Nobody's going to like say, like, wow, amazing, these sexual drawings, you know. But it operates on another, I mean, just to introduce sexuality into that, I actually think it's a pretty good thing, because you're then you're involved with, like, just primal human desires. Isn't that just a tiny bit obvious? Well, didn't people in the days after 9-11 cling to one another? Yeah, exactly. I don't actually think it's obvious. It, uh, they don't have to be good drawings by a particular yeah. academic standard. They're, no, it could they're, be they're, part of their interest that they are kind of they amateur They can be good dogs. drawings okay. by a non-academic standard. Yes, they, they, are, they, are, they, they are, don't come up to that either. No, they are drawings which I think are drawings of intimacy done at the simplest level of the statement of what that might be, and less art in this case, I think, enhances the, the feel for them, that's all. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, 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 I'm I, not offended by the fact they're not good drawings. on the head of this pin? <laughs> I think the pin should be thrown to the audience at this stage. And please, let's also hear what your take was on Shazia Sikander. And we have a roving mic so that we can uh, record you for posterity and hear you, uh, two desirable uh, details. Uh, the mic's at the back. So put your hand up if you'd like to, to come in on uh, Shazia, uh, Goba, R Robert, um, or Sikander, Goba. Um, have we just exhausted the 51 possibilities for Sikander and said all there is on Goba? I, I would, would doubt it. Must, somebody must be bursting to... to um, yes, um, uh, wait for the mic. Yes. Front row, please. Well, I, I thought the uh, small gouache pieces were the most interesting because they seemed the most honest and very personal to her and uh, poetic if I can use that term <laughs> yes Manette Nelson. I'd just like to ask the panel to comment on the Gober as a piece and an installation as opposed to a collection of things do you feel that it worked as a single piece was meant to be a single piece. Would you just comment generally on that? 
I, I, I certainly felt it was supposed to be an event, a piece, uh, and that I, I couldn't not interpret it otherwise. I, it would have been, uh, I think, offensive to the artist to, to try to see it just as a, an assembly of, of gobas, uh, that, that the whole arrangement in the, in the church-like way, the uh, sense of the, the two side chapels giving the male and the female bathers uh, behind, and the, the, the whole arrangement was very... Um, you know, the station's the cross that the, the, the um, uh, New York Times World Trade Center coverage uh, formed and, and the pews that the styrofoam formed. I, I think it would be um, missing the obvious if one weren't to take it as a, as a, as a one-off, as a, as, a, as a unified event. That doesn't prevent one from having individual quality uh, experiences with individual pieces. Does anyone know whether it's considered a single event or whether the individual parts are available each at its own price? Considered a single event, according to the gallery. Okay. Not event, a single piece. Single piece. Mind you, the, the, uh, the Bible, the, 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 um, the prayer book that comes with it that, uh, seems to deal with the individual themes chapter by chapter, but they, they don't necessarily relate to individual what? pieces. You referred to the lexicon as a, the prayer book? <laughs> a little cynical. Very cynical, I would say. I mean, it's like a book okay. that is like a, a, actually it's very well written, and it's just explaining well, some of the ma matter in more or less a matter of fact way some of the stuff that's going on in in uh, you know in the show. I mean, I don't. All right, sir. All right, father. Give me uh, give me the, the penance. I what's the do big ironic? What's the big ironical thing about it? The, the the book in itself was not ironical. I felt the book in itself was. Uh, the institution of art history coming to the service of this, this very lightweight, late avant-garde work. Book. Yes. A Robert Gober lexicon. Okay. But look at the design. Okay, so look at the design of it. Is this not in some way reminiscent of, 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 yes. of, of a kind of literature you might pick up in a church? Yes. No? Am I over-interpreting? Am I being too cynical? Or is the graphic design here perhaps just attempting to look a little uh, liturgical? Yes. Okay, well, well, the jury is still out on that one. Wonderful. Um, I depend usually on uh, Roberta Smith to tell me what Robert Gober is doing. And uh, I, I do not disrespect Robert Gober. I was left flat. Um, I have a certain fascination with his fascination with legs and socks. And, you know, so I have a question for the panel. Can anyone tell me what this was? What was this? Was this our crucifixion? Was this New York's crucifixion? Was this the crucifixion of America by Republicans? I mean, was there a, a total point? We, we know it was a piece. You know, we recognize it as a piece. And um, it's like, what is it? Can you tell me what it is? Does anyone have an idea what it is? as opposed to bits and pieces put together. I mean, there were parts that were male and female with chunks coming out of them and legs coming out of them stuck in the corners. What was it? What was his point? I could get little points. Okay. Well, well Robert, Robert, Robert and Gregory were compelled by the, 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 the nuttiness, the obsessiveness, the desire to make That's that you have. It's not a given. I, to me, it, 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 to me, the, the make the maidness the point of the maidness of 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 this work 
is, is a desire to denigrate, to make the world trash. But again, this is just this is simply imposed. There is no thing you can point to that can ascribe that to the to the artist, right? No, it's you, my interpretation. But, but yeah, but an interpretation with no evidence. And after all, no, interpretation exegesis is based on close reading of the available possible meanings of specific things. To in the in the aggregate, to just say this is trash is not interpretation. No. It's simply invective. But anyway, no, um, no, no. What no, I would say in answer to your question, what I would say in answer to your question, that this is a matrix of symbolic objects, that they are referenced to each other, but that each one of them to a certain degree represents a series of sort of poetic knots. And that uh, that if you take them in the aggregate, you have things about birth and things about death. You have things about sacrament. You have things about the profane as profane love. You have things that are political in a number of different dimensions. Uh, you have things about if you will, sort of the marvel of intense experience of the object of the objective world and other things which are references to spiritual things not present. Again, I'm giving the best case argument for it, and I'm not sure always that the individual pieces live up to that. But he's created an environment in which all these things are meant to occur to you. Some of them occur to me. Some of them I only see as intentions. Uh, but in any case, it makes for a complex room and the longer you stay, the more the complexities begin to inhabit your own thoughts rather than being simply a function of art objects that one has to sort of interpret in order to know what to say at a cocktail party. When I say he's making trash, I, I'm not simply being a tabloid journalist, although I'd be happy to uh, aspire to that. I know, I'm not being a tabloid journalist, I'm, lit I'm saying that, uh, that I'm interpreting the f objects physically and literally as they are. I mean, he's, he is making trash. He's uh, using well, very fine materials to render what is in the world uh, disposable, like a trash can or substances which are well, trash. gloves are not trash. Light bulbs are not trash. Those are all things that, that are used. And they, and they, I mean, with, the, with each of, whether you like it or not, each of those things has like multiple potential meanings. Yes, but he's engaged in a kind of solipsistic activity of using very fine materials to render really rather banal ones without to actually... Make, to make the ordinary seem exactly. marvelous... Right. to remake something so that you pay attention to it in a way that you would not if confronted by the absolute thing. If indeed, again, I'm not a religious person, but if indeed you believe that the world is holy, then ho everything is holy in it. That if you make images of things which are discarded, of no consequence, detritus, and you make them have an aura about them that makes you think about them in relation to death, life, birth, and spirituality, and so on and so forth, you actually have accomplished something. I would also say that such a thing is talking trash. Here's another way of putting it that I would just add one other thing. A long time ago, like 150 years ago, a hack journalist from Brooklyn uh, wrote, uh, the scent of these armpits aromas finer than prayer. Uh, that was Walt Whitman, and when, and when he, when he yes. did that, uh, a lot of people perceived that as like, this guy is an unwashed lunatic from Brooklyn, where I'm from, by the way. Uh, and, and later, it's understood He's the single greatest poet in the American tradition, one of the great poets of, in centuries, and he's really onto something with that notion that he really brought up, that provocative thing, the scent of these armpits aromas 
finer than prayer. The human is so totally essential, so completely important. This is his reverence. This, that's what his reverence was for. And I think it's not a crazy stretch to see Gober as intersecting. When he makes trash cans, when he makes plywood, when he makes uh, styrofoam, exactly as um, Rob Starr said, like taking these banal things and moving them into a world of resonating magic. And I think that's the total strength of, of that show. Well, my problem is that the magic doesn't resonate for me. The transformation doesn't occur simply because the material has transformed. Now, this may mm -hmm. be an enormous failing on my part, um, but I'm inclined to trust my experience and feel that there is some responsibility on the part of the artist. Um, I can only applaud everything that uh, Rob has described. Uh, this is what one hopes happens with a uh, moving work of art. Um, problem is, I'm not getting that element of transformation from this. That I accept, Good evening. Is this on? Okay. Um, when I walked through the gallery, the sculptures that were on the floor operated like these different stages or matrices that I was entering through. And then I noticed the newspapers and um, the photograph that you talked about, the gentleman falling out of the building, um, just itself was so moving. And then seeing his drawings on there, I was feeling, re-feeling the state of cognitive dissonance of the moment. I'm, and then I revisited the diaper bag and I started re-looking at these objects. And I think on that day, we were all in that state of denial that this is occurring. And when I went back into the where the shower, the, the bathtub, I think when I viewed that, that sunk everything and I gave Gober's work credibility because I felt for the man or the woman, if we're not looking at it through my Python eyes, if I accept that that was a female. <laughs> on that day, I think that water could have been running, things could have been going, and I think that we were so unaware of everything going on and the blurring of it, that for me the most powerful part of the Gober installation is that shower where the man is sitting there and you don't see them, so it can serve for the any man or the every man and the point that you made about the wanting for humans to cling to each other on that day in those newspapers I think we all were thinking of our loved ones on that day, so those are the parts of the Gober show that resonated with me yes. At the back Well, um, I didn't see the show, sorry. But from, you know, seeing the installation on the screen, I just, for one thing, it's kind of, it's very deep. I mean, this crucifix looks like it's just been totally objectified, just like a diaper, because the head's off and, and it's become a fountain. So to me, he's resurrecting the sorrows. It's almost like it's, so, it's been done so much. We all know what life is like, and and... Resurrecting those things from the, um, you know, from 9/11, which we've all grieved it, and it's kind of been put aside, so that it's you're resurrecting an image that is easily affects people and easily brings out emotion in them, but it's already really been put aside. So he's saying the same thing. He's saying religion is just an easy way of resurrecting feelings about sorrow, but it's really so hackneyed now that he's he just made it into a fountain. Maybe 
That's my opinion. Okay, thanks for that so. interpretation. There was a, a, a... No, okay. So towards the front, we have some comments. The lady here in grey, second row, or, or wherever you are, that's good. That's fine, sorry. Thanks. Yes. I mean, um, my thought is that... Um, I just thought David is thinking about the work in a spiritual way, and he brought that here, which is really rare for an art critic to do that kind of thinking, I would think, publicly. Okay? I'm sorry, we're not really... I didn't... Uh, all right, okay, that's... Okay, Gilbert is an artist that the art world feels is spiritual. I think to criticize him is, is hard, you know, because yes. he's, he's taken his dear to a lot of people. So I thought that was courageous. Okay, thanks. I'll take praise wherever it comes from. Good lady in the middle. No, no, thank you. It's a good point. It's an interesting point. Thank you. Yeah, a lady with the blonde um, I hate to take the spotlight away from Robert Gober, but um, just uh, I'd like, wonder if the panelists would uh, address a kind of formal question, and that is both the exhibits that uh, we're looking at uh, deal with a group of works that are tied together. And um, I wonder if you'd comment on when you look at such an installation, what is the, how do you tease apart the value of the separate objects from the strength they get in numbers? Yeah, that's a, a good, good subject for a whole evening's discussion. Uh, well, we won't necessarily ignore the question, but we're not necessarily going to answer it directly immediately. I'm going to take one or two more comments on the floor. Uh, yeah, the woman's comment um, in the kind of chartreuse green kind of uh, helped me to see that my engagement with the show, what was striking and strong for me about the Gober show, was my experience of September 11th. And um, while I agree with Ms. Wilkin that it didn't, for me, it, it didn't quite all hang together. I didn't understand the remaking of the diapers. Um, looking at the show, I couldn't believe that I, as an artist, hadn't made drawings like he had made on those newspaper pages. You know, it, it struck me in such a, kind of emotional, elemental way of, of course. That was exactly, that kind of, in, in some ways, summed up my experience of that time. And similarly to what the other woman said, um, the piece of the, the part of the exhibit of the people in the bathtub with the running water, this kind of need for healing and a kind of obliv also a connectedness, but also feeling oblivious to something like the water continually running was very poignant. Um, it's interesting that we've given so much time to the Gober exhibit. As was mentioned, it's obviously very provocative, not only because it dealt with the time period around September 11th. Um, the Sikander exhibit, for me, was delightful, and I'm completely seduced by her work, so I'm actually more interested or more compelled by talking about Gober's work. Um, I do think he's a serious artist, and I... If I had spent more time in the show, perhaps all of the parts would have, I don't know, maybe I'll go back, would have come together for me. But I couldn't find a relationship between those diapers or some of the other objects on the plinths and, say, the drawings or the figures in the back. And I really wanted to be able to because I thought that he was trying something serious, but it Thank wasn't you. coming. I, I just want to add one quick point because I think that's a great 
comment. Maybe Donald Judd was really right about something with this idea that artworks take time and they should stay at a certain place when it's possible and spend, they spend time with that installation by Gober. Because maybe not everything comes in the first 10 minutes. I think it maybe takes a month. That's another possibility. Well, I, I gave it three visits, and uh, let's, I, 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 no, I gave it three visits. Well, I don't see what's so funny about that. I went three times. I, I'm just saying I did my best, and we all did our best, and we're going to move on now to some painting. Dim the lights, and um, we'll look at the imagery of our um, next two shows. Yes, great. This is not upside down. Do no. not worry. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Okay. We've been to see Harriet Shaw at the Cheryl Palavin Gallery. And I need the checklist here. Yes, embarkation. based. Uh, it's an oil on canvas, 40 by 60 inches, uh, based on a reproduction on the... Embarkation for Sithra by Antoine Watteau. And here I'm really regretting the lack of... Uh, uh, not that it's morally wrong, right of me not to have regretted it as much with Gober and Sikander, but really regretting the lack of clarity in the um, projection here because uh, it, it's um, a painting uh, which uh, trades so greatly on uh, detail, although we can debate that point. Next image... Another, uh, this is after Cythera, 40 by 66 inches. Next. After Cythera, the cracked mirror. This is also from 2004, and it's uh, three feet square. Uh, next image, please. Uh, opera from 2003. 43 by 38. Oh, one minute. Oh. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, it's 24. I should have gone to 24. After Sithra, the Lutonist, 2004, which is also three foot square. I had it written down correctly, and I just didn't look at the numbers. And worse still, I didn't look at the image. And there is the Lutonist in the bottom left corner. The next one, Opera. Yes, thank you. Another of these paintings uh, based on uh, uh, porcelain figurine still lives. Next. Um, yeah, this is a uh, girl with a gazing ball, and it's 32 by 66 inches, and so far they've all been oil on canvas. Next, please. Verisimilitude, number two of 2003, and finally, one of the many, one of the several monotypes. Next, please. One of several monotypes, uh, each of 11 by 14 or 14 by 11 inches. This one called After Cythera, number one. The Prince. That's Harriet Shaw's show, which uh, closes tomorrow at the uh, Cheryl Palavin Gallery in Tribeca. And the last show we will be talking about, next please, is the work of the young uh, German uh, <coughs> artist showing at Gladstone, Magnus von Plessen. Next, please. And here we are. You're going to have to rely on the, the, the ekphrastic skills of your panellists in describing, because the brushstrokes obviously 
are so essential to, uh, or that's a value judgment, but are, of, to some extent, essential to, if that's not a contradiction in terms, to be essential to an, to an extent, uh, the, the way in which the paint has been put down. Uh, this one is called uh, Group 2004. It's oil on canvas, and it's 110 by 68 inches. Next, please. Rider, the large rider from 2004. Same dimensions, but the other way. Oil on canvas. Next, please. Um, Allergy, 2004. 65 by 41. And next. Self-portrait with someone else's head, 2004. It's 54 by 45 inches. And you, and you see these very... Well, these... Very. No, we'll describe it later. Next, please. A small rider, 31 <coughs> by 43. Next. Plant, 37 by 25. And finally, train, uh, 32, 37 by 25 inches. Perhaps we're going to enter a discussion in a very different register now. We've gone from this, uh, well, I think if we hadn't gone to Goba next, but we'd gone to, from Sikander to, uh, to, to Harriet Shaw, uh, we might see, have seen as many or more commonalities between those two artists than, than between Sikander and Robert Goba. Do you agree with that, Karen? Uh, no, <laughs> apart from the fact that they're both women, and uh, Harriet Shores is uh, invoking Vato, but I don't think in the in the spirit in which um, Sikander is invoking or actually um, meditating on on a tradition. Um, I, w I was perplexed by the by the Harriet Shore show. I, I was amazed that it was possible to achieve surfaces that dead with oil paint. I mean, that, that's really interesting. Um, but uh, it also, what, what surprised me was, was that there was this wonderful sense of light in the paintings, and they still look dead. And I can't figure out how that is achieved. Um, I pref the, the paintings I was more interested in uh, were uh, not any of the ones that, of which you showed slides, and those were the relatively straight uh, still lives, uh, where I thought there was a, a wonderful uh, interplay between the, the uh, f flowers in the foreground and things that were actually further away. There was that... Uh, the, the picture I was I was most interested in was the one that was that kind of float we had a sort of floating surface, and an impossible upside down um, still life uh, that was either, and then a, a, what appeared to be a floating uh, tablecloth with plums on what appeared to be a glass surface and delphiniums around it, and it was a marvelous knitting together of uh, a drawing of color. Really playing with perception and one and the whole language of illusionistic painting, and I thought that reached a level that uh, most that the, the ones with the uh, with the, the, the figurines and the the Vato illusions uh, did did not uh, reach. Uh, I the uh, the ambition seemed much higher in in the big. Uh, 
called something picnic with plums or something like that. Uh, rather than relying on the, on the appropriation or the reference and or the uh, inherent cuteness of the figurines and the, and all the association of this one has a broken head, this one has something that, that, that seemed to be much easier than, than what she was achieving at, at her highest level. I, I was getting hits of people like Neil Welliver in terms of the palette, um, but the as I say, I, I, I assume that the deadness is, is deliberate, and I, I can't figure it out. Rob, for you, were the surfaces dead, and if so, were they deliberate? Um, well, first of all, I think this may be, since you included her in this, a chance for us to kiss and make up, so, um, <laughs> or at least to make up. Um, uh, oh. <laughs> or, or at least a genuflux in the right direction, same exactly. direction. Okay. Uh, number two, full disclosure, I've known this artist for very nearly 40 years, uh, and when I was a young painter, I envied her what she could do. Um, I think the dryness of certain parts of the painting are there by design. They are, if you will, the astringent element in paintings which are otherwise lush in color, lush in detail, uh, decorative in many of their motifs, and so on. Uh, and so I see these paintings as a particular body of work and a particular departure from what she's done up till now, which was in general a more straightforward kind of still life. Mm -hmm. um, and it is the inclusion of these mini narratives uh, uh, based on um, Vateau and other things as well. And I also see it as a kind of interesting dialogue with another so-called straight realist, eyeball realist, Philip Perlstein. Mm -hmm. uh, Perlstein, of late, it's probably of 12, 14, 15 years now, has been creating uh, allegories in the middle of pictures which are sort of ostensibly just the facts, ma'am, studio paintings. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that what Harriet's doing is something of the same, but the narratives are very different. And I think uh, in some cases they come off fully, in other cases less so, but I think it's a very interesting move for her to make at this time. Um, I think there are lovely little sinister details in some of these, where there is the Prince Charming on his back with a baby on his belly. Uh, there is the flighty woman who presumably is the adulterous um, mother of this child, uh, and so on. I mean, or at least that's my particular fantasy. Um, maybe I just coveted her, that's all. But um, in any case, there are lots of things going on here which are playful, funny, a bit sardonic, and so on, and they're it's a balancing act among the pleasures and the, and the sort of pickancies of these pictures that make them interesting to me. What did the surfaces do for you, Gregory? Well, I, I don't know about the surfaces. I would, I would um, like in the simplest possible terms, I, I was saying, like, I really want to like this work. I think it's, it's very, she's obviously very good and it's interesting, especially with these upside down uh, things uh, and all that. And there are, there are many points that I think are wonderful, great colorists and all of this. But I would just, I don't mean to be, um, uh, you know, to overstep my bounds here, but I would somehow want this artist to become more wild somehow, to even given, even in her language, to like somehow break whatever the borders are that are around it. And I, I think that she's like potentially really very good, and I know that she's been working for a long time, and these are very accomplished but it might be that she's heading in a direction that's like very good and she should maybe go there more uh, and and uh, and I and maybe to the point of like maybe shedding the art historical uh, illusion, illusions so that are you know so pronounced I, 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 don't, I mean there's something really that it just seems to me that she's like on her way to something really lively and fresh that would really rivet uh, my humble self. But at, but at this point, I would say, 
she's like a very talented artist, but uh, for me, I mean, just talented artists are not enough uh, for me, for my, my interest. I want something else, you know, that with a twist, with a surprise, with a real vision that, that really, that really renovates things rather than operates in, in well in a niche. Well, the experience of listening to you give that critique, Gregory, made me feel what it must have felt like for you to listen to me on <laughs> Robert Gober. Because I, I feel that, that, like, we must be on sort of different intellectual or aesthetic planets. Because it, it, I, I hear you coming to her painting with a set of a priori assumptions about what wit is and what twists are and, and where it could be for you. I, I also feel with um, uh, Karen, it's, it's, I, I, I applaud both of you for very intelligent, honest views of that work, which I can totally sympathize with and understand. Um, it's just that I'm fascinated with the work precisely because the twists are so uh, oblique and precisely because uh, the works have a kind of awkwardness and dryness that, to me, this is um, art, this is painting that is very challenging about what painting is. It's a, a kind of... It's, it's how, um, how mysterious can the perceived world be without making um, kind of a, a personal expressionism out of the way that you see and respond to the world. It seems to me that it's kind of, it's dryness, it's tightness, it's crampedness, is far from being sort of like unfortunate limitations of an artist who needs to get over them, the starting point for what's actually their visual excitement. It's a kind of strange way of describing a, 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 a conceptual experience of awkwardness and tightness and strangeness. I mean, if you think, for example, what's the show upstairs? Um, it's, it's surrealism nominally, but really what there's a lot of are the after effects of Rita de Chirico, mm -hmm. of metaphysical painting in which you stage a series of allegories with dolls, props, etc., etc., etc. We're used to seeing that in a rather musty frame. Mm -hmm. um, what Harriet's basically done is to do that, but in the sunshine. Uh, and it's it's interesting because it's an unexpected ploy in terms of realist painting. It's also interesting because in terms of that kind of allegorization, it's equally unexpected to do it with the lights on. You know, sex with the lights on. Oh, brilliant, Robert. You've, you've got it in... You, no, you've got it right. I mean, it's, it's basically... It is, it's Pittura Metaphysica and the American New Perceptual Realism meeting each other where it's the chance encounter on the... On the uh, uh, dissecting table of those <laughs> literally the di a, dis a dissecting table but well not literally metaphorically um, Karen are you, you are you inspired now to go back and revisit the dryness and awkwardness of the work um, my problem is no I, I didn't have any sense of awkwardness I, if anything quite the opposite a sense of enormous accomplishment mm -hmm. um, of, of uh, someone who could do whatever she wanted with paint um, who could uh, orchestrate a in very, very complex series of incidents in a way that was very rich and uh, very surprising. But I did feel that the show was uneven, and I was, I was more uh, interested in the, in the, as I say, the, the, the big painting where there, there was less overt narrative, but f to, to me a more um, complex... Uh, 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 
proposal of ways of representing things, of uh, how we see things, uh, than the, the more uh, staged reflections of the Vateau grouping played off against the, uh, you know, the, the Dresden type or Sev type figurine of the, the shepherdess. I just uh, didn't find that association uh, that surprising. And I, I you know, to, to use those as surrogate figures uh, to, to use the, the the little statuette or the or the doll as as a surrogate for some other uh, event didn't seem to me as as surprising or as rich. I was going to say uh, just uh, to pick up on a word she used, and I don't mean to, to twist your meaning, but just to sort of push oh, off from ahead. it. No, I mean I, I really don't. I'm not I'm not going to uh, uh, sort of uh, take that on. But um, you know, all these shows that we've looked at, I think this week, uh, with the exception perhaps of the last one, are, are uneven. And I must say I'm grateful for that. Um, I think it, by contrast, and we discussed a little bit before the panel, there's a very uh, evenly bad show, which is the uh, not the Matthew Barish, the um, um, what's his face, Damien Hurst. Damien Hurst. Yes, that's an evenly bad show, and we have seen a lot of exhibitions which are product line exhibitions where you get just about the same thing in different sizes and of mm -hmm. course different price brackets. Um, and there's a there are a lot of artists who are tailoring their exhibitions to this kind of approach. Artists, again, that change and grow and make mistakes and do all of it in public and show it to you are, are much more interesting because even the less good pictures are part of the texture of actual creativity as opposed to this other thing, uh, which is simply manufacture. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, my use of the word was not uh, intended as anything other no, than again, purely, I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm, purely descriptive. Yeah, yeah. You know. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I... I Gregory, are you moved by anything you've heard to sort of rethink? Um, no. I, I, I still, it's the same thing that I felt. It's like she's obviously very good, she's onto something, and I just think that she should go like considerably further and take considerably more liberties, even maybe with some cherished assumptions. Why do you have to work with these figurines? Why do you have to have an art historical reference? Just like I, I felt the art historical reference was... Uh, not overwhelming. I think there was more art historical reference in, in Goba than there is in... Uh, she's got the little figurines and she's got Rococo, but um, it's, it seemed to me that, that there's no um, overt, decodable allegory or, or conceptual point in the actual appropriation of Watteau. I felt it was a, a kind of kinship on, on the one level with the, kind, um, the feyness of, of, of Watteau. The, the, the fayness of Watto. Fayness. Fay. The, the, the touchness. <laughs> yes. Different Watto than I've seen all my life. <laughs> well, uh, perhaps we're using the word fay in a different way. I mean, I, I, the, the, what is the problem? What, what way do you see Watto that's, that's so diametrically opposed to the fay? Well, I find, I find him an enormously serious, melancholy artist. Yes. Uh, very autumnal. Um, you know, go go to go to Versailles in early October, or Vaux-le-Vicomte is even better. Um, but Faye suggests a kind of uh, uh, touched. It means literally. Yeah, a little little loopy um, and and uh, precious. Yes. And I I would say that Watteau's followers, uh, Lancre, and that gang, mm -hmm. the little Rocco decorative paintings are. 
Uh, I'm not using Faye in a derogatory sense. I, I, I mean that there's a kind of um, uh, melancholy. This is exactly what I meant. I mean, I think, okay, melancholy. Well, <laughs> if you help, if you were meaning to help clarify my line of thought, you did the opposite because I've now forgotten what I was going to say. So, um, where are we, time-wise? Okay. Um, you were at Harriet Shore. Yes. Anyone else on the panel wish to, to say more on, on Harriet Shaw? Well, just the last thing I would say, only just as a matter of the nature of the career, um, that the use of these figures and of anything art historical of this kind is actually new. This is her first mm -hmm. venture into mm -hmm. this territory. So you may or may not think it works or whatever it is, but it does actually represent a bid to do something quite different from what she's done. And uh, it was unexpected for me, and uh, I got pleasure from it. Yeah, I, when, I, 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 when I mentioned the awkwardness that I sensed in her work, which, which Karen, again, was, a, was not able to, to share that perception, um, to me it's not, it's a question, it's, it's not the awkwardness in actually rendering an individual instance on the surface. It's the kind of um, overall awkwardness of, of a kind of... Um, uh, very tight realism. Um, I think I'm going to move on to Magnus von Plessen now, if we could. Um, Robert, it sounded like you were discriminating between von Plessen and the other three uh, uh, artists we were looking at in terms of the evenness and unevenness. Was it evenly good or evenly weak or some? How was how was the what was the even effect of von Plessen for you? It was formulaic and rather dull, I thought. Mm. Um, and uh, it was uh, technically uh, also sort of show-off. Um, but the technique does nothing for the images. Um, the technique itself is not that spectacular. Um, there's, what's his name, Kreber, who is sort of the chef mm. d'école of this, who does it very well. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it was like, you know, good art school performance of a bad idea. Um, and I kept thinking, I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm sure I'll stir somebody's ire here, but I am not a fan of Nicolas de Stael, although I admire some paintings that he made and can look at them seriously. But he had a formula mm -hmm. for the broad stroke, the narrow stroke, the pasty stroke, the drag stroke, and he put together his pictures out of a set of, you know, um, you know, available options sitting on his palette and in his hand. Uh, and they were proficient, stylish, smart, sophisticated, really not very interesting pictures. Uh, this is the sort of slightly more angsty version of the same strategy. Well, it's German. And it's German, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, uh, and compared to some, I mean, Eberhard Haberkost, it seems to me, is equally conservative as a painter, but, but he hits it more often. Um, Scheibitz, maybe more often. Uh, Kreber, again, much more often. But all of them are essentially stylists. Uh, an ambitious painting, I think, should be more than styles, exercises. I don't radically disagree, other than to say that, for me, it seemed that um, a take on stylishness was sort of manifestly, or implicitly, rather, uh, something of its intention. It seems to be a commentary about painting. Um, there, of course, it's the having your cake and eating it strategy of the contemporary artist making something of a pastiche of uh, salon painting of, say, half a century earlier. I don't think it was de style uh, that she was uh, 
uh, he was uh, riffing on so much as a kind of generic um, salon d'autant uh, abstraction figuration, configuration. Um, but I wondered if he had, if he was within the, his knowing, able to sort of transcend his knowingness to make some images which do have some kind of poignancy uh, to them. And while often the the sheer tricksiness of his style was grating on me, I felt that overall there was something um, uh, in these works that uh, seemed to suggest um, somebody engaging with the world. I, I thought this was someone engaging with the marketplace. Um, you know, very. Be so lucky. <laughs> well, look, he's got he's got all his chops down. You know, he's got his style. He's got his his mark. He's got his signature approach. I thought it looked very manufactured. Um, you you know, as you said, uh, any number of of contemporary Germans who I think are doing it better. And then I I kept thinking of those. Um, uh, uh, Egon Schiele paintings that, that uh, adolescents are so crazy about, you know, where the paint is scraped on, and it, it's frightfully clever, and I couldn't have cared less. Sheer technique, Gregory? Or well, some, interest, some interestingly enough, I just got back um, a few days ago from uh, Mass Mocha of all places, where I had to make a whirlwind tour to see the Leipzig uh, show, which I will write about. And I've heard a lot, I don't know how much you know about these new Leipzig painters, but in a way, in Germany, the torch is being passed from uh, Richter, who's like the greatest, uh, to, to Polka, and now to Neo Rauch. That's basically what's happening in many ways. Next great German painter, one the, what, who stayed in the East. He stayed in Leipzig. He didn't never left. And one thing that that he one influence of Neo Rauch is is that he, he these art these younger artists who are coming to Leipzig to study at the academy. Many of them from the West are now doing like really well, and it's this so-called new Leipzig School of Painting. And I was really prepared to go up to Massmoke and say, what a bunch of nonsense this, uh, uh, you know, I know it's an art world thing and there's a lot of money here. Uh, but at the same time, I was really, I thought the show was really quite wonderful, uh, 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 very wonderful, among other things that they're doing are just these like sideways glimpses of people in like really banal scenes that I, that either are really potent or or not uh, it, 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 that that kind of thing and I think that they're really better than than him I mean he he's in so influenced in a certain sense you see the palette it's like it's this kind of new palette that's a little bit worn, uh, like a little bit faded 60s advertisement colors. And that, uh, but it's just, it seems like it doesn't have the kind of uh, power that I, I've seen in some of that, that other work. That's what, that's what I would say. And I, I agree that it is more formulaic. And, and maybe one of the other issues here is that it's like a content problem, at least for me. That it's just like, you know, the more you spend time with it, the, at least the more I spend time with it, the less I really discover in terms of, of the content. Whereas those artists that I encountered from Leipzig, many of them from the West who have taken up residency in Leipzig, you know, they are really affected by that city and by its place and by its history and it's what the apartments look like and the East. Western German artists deeply in, 
involved with invested in, in the East. By the way, my wife is uh, from Leipzig, so mm -hmm. full disclosure here. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, and it's just to me, it's just like much more happening, much more risky. Uh, a bunch of those artists that that than than this than Magnus von Plessen at least for me. Yes, I certainly wouldn't put von Plessen on the same level as Scheibitz, who I admire enormously, or, or Neo Rausch, who I like, uh, but tend to view as a Kitai light in his uh, approach and style and touch. Um, interesting that, you know, Kitai is also showing at the moment an artist who we could have talked about. Um, von Plessen seemed to me, however, that formula seemed to me, it seemed to be so overt that I felt that there was a game to be played in much the way that one had in, in Damien Hirst, to sort of, uh, in, in Hirst, uh, a need in the way to sort of, sort of denigrate painting and, and to sort of be a, a sort of dead painting within painting. Um, that von Plessen, I don't think, I, I mean, von Plessen's uh, way of painting, as I say, it's having your cake and eating it because it, 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 it produces these uh, saleable pretty objects, but it is a comment about painting, and, then, and as such, it's um, a sort of expression of alienation at the same time as wanting to get his hands dirty and make painting. Since you mentioned Kitai, um, I'd just like to bring you into the conversation in two directions. Um, he is a very problematic artist, uh, also a very interesting one to me, mm -hmm. uh, and also one whose historical significance has been rather uh, lost sight of in respect to his more recent work and his mm -hmm. diasporic manifestos and so on and so forth. Um, the exhibition, which is at Marlborough, is, a pr again, a problematic show, mm -hmm. but there's a wonderful thing in the back, which is this print series that he did yes. of book covers. In our and, time. And he famously called, he made famously said at one point, uh, some books have pictures, some pictures have books. He is an incredibly well-read man, and the idea of taking a number of uh, covers of both uh, minor and major works of 20th century, early 20th century writing and turning them into a kind of narration of ideas and discourses and dialogues and so on to it is a very early and under-acknowledged uh, case of appropriation art. Uh, whatever Steve Wolf is doing, whatever a lot of other people are doing now with that mode, I respect actually a great deal. But Gitai got there first. He did it uh, with, again, a political understanding of the world, which is very pointed at that time and very interesting. And I would say since you seem to like them, it is also what Bob Gober does. He remakes, he remakes things without apparent alteration and represents them in a way that you think of them differently in combinations with other remade things. It's the same strategy. Uh, and I think, in fact, Gober and Kitai are in their way, both of them literary artists. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I, I hear a little challenge there. Um, no, just a, a histor art historical content, <laughs> since I'm now an art historian. Yeah. <laughs> Kitai's early prints, I feel, set the stage for what happens later, and that if, if Kitai's career stops within our time, he will be a very important footnote in the history of pop art and appropriation because they're appropriated. But what is implicit within the In Our Time series and then becomes explicit in the way that his uh, painting career unfolds is that it is a, an intensely personal and very expressionistic appropriation. 
it's it's um, it's it's setting out the coordinates of of a, a response to the past and to history and to politics and to Jewishness and the themes that then he's he's a kind of midrashic artist who reinvents the meaning of his own earlier work as he goes along. The richness of the In Our Time series has to do with what comes afterwards uh, for me. Um, in and of itself, I, 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 for me, they're souvenirs of... The In Our Time series is, is, is a set of souvenirs of a very compelling and extraordinary uh, and rich uh, mind and a, a body of painting that came from that mind. In itself, they're fun. I have uh, Ezra Pound's How to Read from that series uh, in my study, but I... I have it also, and I also have Trotsky's um, Terrorism, and um, I forget, I look at both of them, and yes. I think a lot about the 20th century. They do exactly what that work is supposed to do, which is to concentrate the mind. And they, but they also, in fact, do things uh, pictorially and formally by the increase in scale from the uh, original, they're mostly pamphlets about this size. They become very large. We've segued into another show here, but I think we've <laughs> given Von Plessen as much as he deserves. And... <laughs> As, we're, as the train is off the uh, tracks, um, and as we've mentioned, Hearst, um, anybody got any comments on the other big shows at the moment? Uh, Fischl, for instance. Uh, is, are we seeing Fischl at his best in his latest show? I don't, I don't think it's Fischl at his best. I mean, I, I, I'm starting to wonder why he isn't um, just doing the photographs, because mm. he's, he's so interested in staging the, the narratives. Um, and seems to me less interested in what the paint can do. Um, but, I mean, he's someone I take very seriously. I've, I've known him since he was an abstract artist, um, and I, I know the you know I know the process that he's gone through, and I, I have to respect it and I have to take it seriously. I, it's it's a strain uh, when he's doing uh, society portraits from photographs with you know Steve Martin grinning. Um, it's maybe why I don't see Eric nearly as often as I used to see him. But um, I'm, I'm interested in these, in these open-ended, if you like, films that he's, he's staging. There was the one in the, in the uh, early Mies van der Rohe, uh, Krefeld House, uh, what, about a year ago, two years ago? That's what these are based on, these latest films. Well, this is a different setting and, a, and a, a different cast of characters, but it's a similar kind of thing, this kind of very ambiguous, uh, fraught sexual relationship um, with the, the sense of, you know, maybe you shouldn't be looking at this, you know, the, um, but I'm not, I don't feel that the paint itself is enhancing it. I think it's the image and the place and the, the specificity of this, uh, at the same time, open, uh, you know, ambiguous event, an unexplained event. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about that. They, they seem to be, get to be getting more, more, more about the photographic image and less about the painting. Before we turn to the audience for their response to... Uh, von Plessen and Shaw. Um, can I ask the panelists if they wish to nominate a favourite show at the moment? Is there a show that we haven't discussed perhaps that really should perhaps have been on the agenda or that, that they've been marvelled they've marvelled at or been really surprised by, uh, delighted by? Any any big plugs for the evening? Okay, well, I wrote a catalog essay for it, so this is, again, full disclosure. But I think the Kippenberger shows in town are not equally no. interesting, but very interesting in the yeah. aggregate, and I think he's an undervalued artist in this country. Um, 
I'm, you know, reserving judgment on the Leipzig School as a school, uh, but I think it's an interesting next move after somebody who has been highlighted from time to time but never taken as seriously as he ought to be. And uh, I think his perversities as well as his talents are the most interesting thing about him. He's a, he's a conceptual artist who paints and sometimes who didn't paint. Mm -hmm. The, the self-portrait show, I think, is yeah. a stunner. Mm -hmm. um, there's a... There's a uh, a show, at Ed, I think it's about to end, at, at Ed Thorpe um, by uh, Matt Blackwell, which is just uh, wacko uh, improvisational imagery, uh, everything from a self-portrait, a surrogate self-portrait bear uh, to uh, loving portraits of, you know, 60s cars um, in a absolutely convincing uh, this is nutty personal narrative and the most seductive and rich and uh, intelligent paint handling. Uh, I'm, I'm quite irrationally uh, charmed by the show and, and interested in it. Uh, just uh, one thing, uh, not, not just to take a, one liberty uh, with this, uh, uh, just throw out two things that are not shows and, and in response to Damien Hurst. I mean, there are certain times when the art world makes me really nuts, and that's one of them. You know, uh, selling out for 20 million people dutifully are racing there. Oh, it's like a machine that just works. It's so predictable and so ridiculous for me. Uh, and uh, But, I mean, one of the good things about my hilarious life and traveling and writing about art is that I meet, like, wonderful artists sometimes. And I just throw out two who, for some bizarre reason, are very underknown here, although they're really at the top of their profession. First is Roman Signer from Switzerland, mm -hmm. uh, amazingly great sculptor who's known for his um, sculptures as events, a sculpture, if you don't know him, that exists for maybe one or two seconds and comes to the audience in photos or, or in video documentation. If you don't know him, I would encourage to look Signer up, S-I-G-N-E-R, Google him. And the other you will have a chance to see is Aisha Erkman, one of Turkey's two greatest artists, in my opinion, the other being Kutluk Ataman. And she'll have a much welcome show at Sculpture Center uh, here a bit down the line. Uh, and I would in totally encourage you, once again, to look her up, E-R-K-M-E-N, e major artist uh, who's, for some whatever reason, seriously underknown here. And both of them are so far beyond uh, what has been, what was shown at, um, what is being shown at Gagosian and in other venues. Uh, and I think it's a certain, one thing I try to do as a critic is sometimes pay attention to that, what I think is really good, heedless of how the economics and politics of the art world are operating. I mean, I think we can, in a way, thank Damien. Uh, when there's a lot of filthy lucre lying around, you need a sponge to mop it up. <laughs> and I think he's done that very successfully. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Okay. Well, <laughs> okay, let's bring in the, uh, some, some audience participation and let's hear your response to the last two shows we've seen. Or um, Joe Fife, who has a marvelous show at the moment himself, but uh, uh, JG, contemporary. So, uh, yeah, the gentleman there. Yeah, I was just wondering, uh, it's a general question. Every, all four of the artists you chose tonight work with, to some extent, I image reproduction. Either, you know, um, Gober manufactures 
some of his imagery from you know manufactured material and everybody else seems to be working with some kind of imagery that's either processed once or twice before it gets to what they do with it um, is that kind of like uh, lingua franca now um, does it does it mean that experience is second and third hand and that it's kind of like what, what most work is commenting on, inadvertently or deliberately. Very perceptive, interesting point. Let's mull over it and hear some more from the audience. Uh, Lady Hearn, right? Orange. Um, we've just been talking about work tonight that's um, inspired by religion and spirituality and maybe even common objects and mortality. I wondered what you thought of the pay-to-coin shows. No, oh, well, you should have come to review panel number uh, three or four, I think, which uh, went as far as I think we could into pay-to-coin. Go online and you can hear... Who, who was on pay-to-coin? I can't remember. Joe, were you on pay-to-coin? No, it was the one before then. Okay. Number three. James, yes. The last one. We discussed Petacoin uh, last time. Irving Sandler. Uh, just one small uh, point about the Harriet Shore. Those figurines were smashed, mm -hmm. uh, which I found enormously interesting. And I don't want to stretch 9-11 anyway, but it certainly follows, or uh, how shall I put it, diverges from her past work. I, I believe that she received them in that state. They, they, a friend knew that she was working from um, uh, Vateau, and um, uh, she, uh, this friend had these figurines that they had inherited from a relative and hated them so much. <laughs> and whereas Harriet said she had grown up in a very purist, modernist household and had never been exposed to tchotchkes, so for her they were a, a fascinating motif to work from. Is that right, Cheryl? Sorry? She chose. Oh, absolutely. I'm not. Absolutely. And uh, for me, that ties in with the. I'm not allowed to use the word fay in relation to Watteau, but it, 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 ties, it ties in with the kind of melancholy, a certain degree of the elegiac and the uh, alienated. Ed, Ed and Arcadia Ego. Exactly, that one has in the embarkation to Sidera. It's uh, the. the, the um, for me, the broken porcelains are the, the return trip from Sidera. To use fay in relation to her work. Uh, her work is maybe not a bad idea, and it could be a positive term in some ways. I would only use the term. I use the term positively, and maybe it's yeah. a generational thing. For me, uh, Elizabeth Payton, an artist I adore, is 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 extremely fay and right out of Watteau. Mm -hmm. um, another comment? Yes, a lady in the red in the front. Uh, actually, I'm going to leave it to you to go to where you see the uh, hands. That's... Uh, I, um, I was interested in a further explanation of why we should see these uneven shows and what is the virtue of uneven shows. Oh, what is the vir the question is what is the virtue in uneven shows? And I, I think we I, I suspect we'd all be united in that because isn't it a question that um, von Plessen that the fault with von Plessen is the the formulaic the generic the fact that you can't really say this one was that much better than that one you're very encouraged to take them as a package whereas. It's a sign of rich, ambitious, difficult work that uh, sometimes they're going to hit and sometimes they're going to miss. 
But uh, as Van Gogh said, uh, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to miss that error. They, they have the willingness to show us when they didn't quite hit. And of course, they may not know themselves when they're hitting and when they're missing, but the process of exhibiting is part of their own education as well as ours. And we get to disagree about which ones hit and which ones miss too. That's the other part. Yes. Of it. I mean, you're not given a, a, a uniform a entity. You, you really have to use your judgment and you will get different judgments from different people. And it's, it's like watching the process in some mm. sense, the, the, the testing of one work against another and figuring out why something happens in one and doesn't happen in another. It's a way of testing yourself too, your own reactions. For me, the one redeeming point of interest in the Damien Hurst exhibit is that you had um, uh, a body of work in uh, at least four, maybe five different hands and styles which managed to achieve uh, a, a uniform dreariness. <laughs> and the stylistic shifts result from the employment of assistants to make the work. Amen. I mean, the master of the pill, I think. The unknown master of the uh, Wayne Tebow without any painterliness pill was, to me, the best bit of Damien, but that's the, the degree of diversity that he allows. Uh, yes? I've, I've heard, actually, that the assistants were moved from painting to painting in the Hearst show, deliberately because each assistant was becoming so attached to what was then becoming his painting as opposed to or her painting as opposed to Damien's painting. So, in fact, I think that there is, there, there is that perception because within the stream of realism, there is a perceived difference from, say, the pill paintings and the, uh, the crystal paintings and the terrorist paintings. But, in fact, my understanding is that the assistants were all moved around. You see, that's a connection then you can make to Shazia Sikander since in the, in the, mm -hmm. the tradition of miniatures, you'll have specialists in each section. Mm -hmm. But here you have non-specialists in exactly. any section. <laughs> uh, so it turns into committee work, basically. Precisely. Is this the assembly line method? Is that the assembly line method. No, because the assembly line would imply kind of specialization. Well, actually, I, I don't like... ...of the same movement. And in fact, this had to do with, with getting detached from the process of the creativity. I mean, and, I'm not a fan of, of Kunz's paintings, although I'm interested in his sculpture, but I think these make Kunz's paintings look awfully good by comparison. <laughs> yeah, these make Mark Costabi look like an artist. <laughs> And more? Uh, anyone else? Uh, well, no, let's have some other voices, yes. Well, I found it very interesting that we slid away from the von Klesen paintings. I I, I just they thought that was, yeah, yes. it was very, very interesting. And um, the Harriet Shore paintings, you know, it, it was great to hear you all speak about them because I, like Heron, I thought they were, I couldn't believe they were oil paint and I wanted to just put more paint on them. I wanted to paint them, you know, and, and add some richness and depth and color and everything. But um, it was wonderful hearing her history that she's been painting, that you've been following her for, or know her for 40 years. And, and it's true that artists, you know, do go through periods and, you know, you have to venture into the unknown and do something totally new. And whether it's good or bad, it sort of doesn't matter because eventually you'll, you know, as long as you keep on working, it will grow. So this is really a, a, a very interesting panel for me. I, I love that it just kept opening me up. And I, I just thank, thank everyone for thank that. You. Votes of thanks are always accepted. Lady in red. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that we're back to Harris' work because actually I have a question for Gregory Volk. And I wanted to hear more about your um, being kind of disappointed about the art historical reference. And because you, you, you're saying I would like to... Um, Oh, the art historical reference? Did, did you hear that? Yeah, no, I can't. Ah, okay, and so why, why do you think that she should move further and, and, and you, you, you kind of 
juxtapose the freshness to the art, something fresh as being away from the art historical reference. So that, that's my. I mean, I told you at the beginning I would talk as I, as I would as a critic out there on the street seeing things and making a decision. If that's an artist I would want to work with in a show, a curate show sometimes, if that's something that totally walloped me, if that's something I'm going to be thinking about when I go home. This is all like... It's like the tools of my trade, but it's not really a professional thing. It's like a deep engagement. And I did not feel this there for whatever reason. I can only be honest with you. And I, uh, I don't know why. Uh, I think that she's very good. I, th I, think that she, I think it might be for other people. You know, I'm, not, I'm just one, you know, lonely... Uh, passionate voice out there, but um, it didn't happen for me. And I think that it's because there's some kind of safety, even though she's taking risks, I, this is some kind of safety that I sense. Is it possible that there's a diversity of, of safety versus risk in this phenomenon that Joe Fife has pinpointed, that all four artists to some degree or another, and with very different intentions, that all four artists... Um, are uh, re-representing re what, what are uh, already mediated uh, images or objects um, well, and styles. I, I was interested in the question is whether this is a, a characteristic of the moment. And I started thinking, well, the, the official certainly does that. Mm -hmm. um, and there's another show that just opened, which, which um, I, I thought of, which... Um, one level is based on very direct perception. That's Graham Nixon's show at, at mm -hmm. Sound or O'Reilly. Um, this is someone who works obsessively from the model drawing, uh, someone who is uh, utterly passionate about the uh, importance of perception. The, I don't have to tell you. You hang out at the studio school as much as I do. Um, but that those drawings which are done from the model are always translated um, into paintings that are deliberately distanced from that, that experience by virtue of the color, by virtue of the mark, by, and, and by virtue of these repeated characters, this kind of uh, Nixon mythology that, that he is uh, constantly expanding on. So even someone who's working directly from the model seems to feel some need to create that, that level of distance. Well, in his work, I think there's always a very... Uh, I think of those two dragons that are fighting under in, in the Arturian legend, that between the, the perceptual and the synthetic in that body of work, there's always this amazing kind of yin-yang yin -yang kind of conflict, which to me, in a more uh, low-octane, serene way, is also present in, in, in Harriet Shaw. More from the audience. Yes, Susan Shatter, front row. I was. I think this is Harriet's most adventurous show. I too have known her for forty years, and I was puzzled by the Watteau connection, and then it clicked in my mind what where it came from, and it comes directly through her love of Alex, Alex Katz's paintings, yes. who loves Watteau. And, um, in fact, it was a great preacher for him. Yes. And um, the, the sense of grand manner, um, beautifully painted surfaces, and scale for scale's sake mm -hmm. are all there. 
I think you're totally on the mark. I think you're totally on the money there. I, I, I agree. I mean, uh, Harriet Shaw I came to with a great deal of expectation because she belongs to that kind of miraculous generation of Yaleys that include uh, Rackstraw Downs and Janet Fish, and it's a generation for whom Alex Katz was a, an influential visiting professor, and I, I may not be a trade secret, but I tend to see the world through Katzian spectacles. Um, but um, on the other hand, to me, I think Rob is right that there's there's more there's more of the sort of Pearlstein world than the Katz world. I think yeah. that there's um, I think that Katz is an embodiment of Watteau, and that um, that uh, that that Harriet Shaw is dealing with her own alienation from that kind of degree of fluency. Can I just interject too something here, which is we've talked about the Leipzig School. Um, there are many different types of art being made now, and there's a good deal of discussion about globalization, homogenization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as if somehow everybody's playing out of the same deck, everybody's involved in the same cultural milieu, and so on. And I think uh, different kinds of reactions to what Harriet Shore does uh, may partly be an indicator of the fact that we're really not all playing out of the same deck. There is a New York school, right? There are New York painters who, who, who are making art in an international idiom. Uh, but there really is a New York school, and she represents by this lineage uh, a connection to that. And I think that's something understood better by people who grow up in that world in some fashion, not just the places that they paint, but a whole way in which Americans adapted French a la prima painting, you know, what happened out of Manet, etc. And it may not, in fact, be for everybody, you know, but it is a, it is a very strong strain of American painting. Uh, and uh, it is also interesting that Alex has become the, the, the sort of signal American painter for a lot of Europeans now. He is mm -hmm. showing all over Europe, yes. and he is seen now as a figure as, as typically American as you could possibly get. Odd set of circumstances. And another, another odd and amusing coincidence, I'm thinking of um, uh, Raphael Rubinstein's uh, critique of uh, a couple of years ago in which he actually sing signals, singles out... Uh, Alex Katz and Martin Kippenberger as the paradigm artists of our moment, and uh, I don't personally see the strong connection between them, well, but I'll, I'll work on that. They were, they were both in the Charpentier show that Alison Gingeros did, actually. That was yes. a kind of interesting surprise. Uh, mm. the, the French, alas, were represented by Bernard Buffet. Mm. So, um, <laughs> not, not a great service to anybody <laughs> we care about. Um, yes, maybe uh, in the red. By the way, we're over our time. We're just sort of freewheeling here. So. Seems like all the ladies are in red. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I also have known Harriet Shore for a long time, and and um, I, I still went to the all four shows today. And, um, you know, I was... She's been painting objects on tablecloths or on bedspreads for several, many years. It's kind of a continuum. And I thought about Fairfield Porter as well as Alex Katz, and, and you mentioned Neil Welliver. And, and um, this sort of detached... There definitely is a detached elegance... Uh, and I, and I, it, it, I, don't, I didn't know it was New York painting. I, I was thinking it, it had something to do with a sense of the picture plane. It, it's this, like not, not, even though there are shadows in the painting, somehow they're seen as sitting rather flatly. Uh, and I, this is sort of a lyrical light that dances through that painting. I, I, I didn't find them dead at all. Yes, uh, Cheryl Palavin, who represents the artist, would like to... Yeah. You've given me courage. Um, <laughs> dealers are um, supposedly notorious for knowing nothing, and um, 
I don't know a lot of art history, but I do know Harriet very well, and I know those paintings very well. And when you use the word dead, my heart sank. I just don't know how you could look at those paintings and say they were dead. I didn't say the paintings were dead. I said the surfaces were dead. That's two different things. But those surfaces dance with light and color. And they're thin, but I want to say this. They're fatter than they've ever been. She's, um, she's, she is letting loose. Um, and I think Gregory picked up on something that from the work I've seen before to what she, you know, this is her third show with me. She's letting loose a little bit more than she has before. The paint is fatter, slicker, and more sensual. And she's breaking away from the rules that she gave herself for so many years. I think fat, slick, and sensual are good words to end on. And this recover- <laughs> um, I, like to think of, I like to think of painting as a, as a whole, as a kind of um, recovering anorexia. Thank you very much. Thanks so much.